Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that, you guessed it, makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by returning guest Monica Ramirez, where I ask her, what's happening today in the Latina community? Oh, welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have one of our favorite people. Put your hands together for Monica Ramirez, who, if you don't remember, is an attorney, an author, and an activist. And then also, since we talked, you won a James Beard Award. You were named one of People in Espanol's most powerful women. Get out of here with that title. And you're launching a festival celebrating Latinx politics, art, and culture. I'm excited to catch up. I miss you to pieces. And also... You know, because this is like a podcast and people don't necessarily see you. You got really cute reading glasses, too. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to see you. And you know what? You've been on fire. You give me such joy. You know, I follow along with what you're doing and just so grateful for you. And also grateful for the fact that they have many cute reading glasses out there. Mm. So that's also a good thing. You're such a dang solid person. You better work. Okay, but wait. So first off, I think uh, listeners will be familiar with terms like Latinx, but I wondered whether you could share what they mean to you to start. Yeah, so I think a lot of people are confused because they're like, wait, was it Latino, Latina? We're not sure. So Latinx is a term adopted really you know, fairly recently in the United States. And the reason that that word was created was because um, people wanted to ensure that we are recognizing and showing that we are in community with and solidarity with non-binary and LGBTQI people. And the Spanish language is a very gendered language. So Latino, Latina, that doesn't include everyone. And Latine was actually the term that was created in Latin America because X isn't actually usually used in Spanish regularly. And so that the Latine term kind of emerged around the same time, but it derived from Latin America. And Latinx was a term here in the United States that was being used. But but both of them are being used to make sure that we are embracing our non-binary Latinx siblings. I feel like I'm having to have a lot of those conversations of like why birthing people and like people who give birth is like a good thing. And it's just like factual, inclusive language. Like it's not being like an on fire exactly. progressive. Well, I guess I am an on fire progressive, which I'm also proud of. But the point is, is that it's just using inclusive, factual language and it's good to use. I love the development and the evolution of language. It's so yeah, cool. It is so cool. People should be able to choose how. They identify, they should be able to to have a choice of the terminology that they feel best represents them. You know, because I'm the co-founder of the Latinx House, people criticize and comment and question all the time. And, you know, myself and the co-founders, Olga Segura and Alex martinez Kondrecki, we feel really strongly that we have made a, a moral decision. It is of our values to be as inclusive as we possibly can. And the reality is that, as you know, language changes. And so in five years, it might be a different word that we're using. But as far as we're concerned, as long as it is a word that is including everyone, not erasing people, not being exclusionary, then those are the terms that we want to adopt and we will continue to stand behind. So we know that the Latine, which... (laughs) I want to say Latina. I don't want to say Latinx. Like, why are we conforming fucking English words for, like, 
Latine, honey. I was like, you say Latine. We say Latine and Latinx. Latine actually emerged after Latinx. So when we had created the name for our organization, it was before people were using Latine. Mm. But we use both Latine and Latinx. So you use whatever you're most comfortable with. I love that. That's so non-binary. I love doing both. So yeah, Latine, Latinx. But we know that the Latine and Latinx community is not a monolith. Just like any community, there's a whole gorgeous spectrum of folks. So what is the range of backgrounds and experiences from within the Latine and Latinx community? Yeah, thank you for asking that question because it's important for people to understand that there are 62 million plus Latine people in the United States. We are not a small number of people in this country. 62 million out of only like 330, right? Yeah, we are 62 million people. And, you know, in Latin America and the Caribbean, there's 33 countries. And in Latin America, there's 17 countries. So the the Latin community in the United States, we're comprised of people from all over Latin America. We are U.S. born. We are immigrants in the United States from Latin American countries. You know, if you talk to some of our siblings from the organization Cielo based in in Los Angeles, they are an indigenous rights organization and they identify as their indigenous nations in Latin America. So Zapotec and, and other nations, you know, they are very clear in that they are part of our movement to win rights and dignity for Latine community members, but they also want to be recognized as their own nations. We speak different languages. You know, there's this idea that we all speak Spanish. First of all, I'm third generation Mexican American. Spanish was not taught to me as a child because my family didn't want to have us experience discrimination in rural Ohio. There are many people like me who didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I do speak Spanish now, but, you know, people in our community speak Portuguese. They speak their indigenous languages. um, And some people speak English only because they have not had the opportunity to learn Spanish, Portuguese, or another language. So we are definitely not a monolith. And the other thing I want to point out in terms of issues, there's this idea that we are a one issue community. People think that immigration is the only issue that we care about. But the reality is, and you know this, um, that first of all, we care about immigration. Immigration impacts our lives. It impacts our families. But part of the United States was Mexico before it was the United States. So there are people here who've been here for hundreds of years, who've been here for a long time. And so it's really, really important that we not put communities in boxes because we care about economic security. We care about climate. We care about reproductive health and justice. Like we care about many, many things, including immigration. And it speaks to the multitude of backgrounds and walks of life that we represent. Yes. Yes. I do think that that's really important to think about. I think one thing that really blows my mind from that that brief bit is 62 million is like, this is a lot of people. And we really do a disservice, especially like non-Latine people, non-Latinx people. It just costs people their dignity when you like don't think about all of the myriad of ways that people are approaching a situation. I'm from rural Ohio and... So I consider myself a rural Latina because my experience growing up in rural Ohio is very different than a Latinx person living in Brooklyn, Miami or in L.A. You know, we can't put people in boxes. And then in my brain, I jokingly said to myself, like, except for Republicans. But then I thought... 
there's so many Latinx and Latina Republicans too, which then made me think about like Florida. And it made me think about like how Republicans have like weaponized the word socialism to like scare the fuck out of like Cuban people and like other people who've experienced like oppressive regimes. We've talked about on Getting Curious prior about how like so many of the guns that like, well, all the guns that flooded Central America are like because of us. Like so many of the issues that have befallen Central America are like because of like literal actions of the U.S. And then it's like, the Postal Service is socialism. Parks are socialism. I just think it's yeah. it's so frustrating the way that, like, people weaponize, specifically, like, powerful Republicans weaponize information to scare people into voting against, like, their own interests. I mean, I think that what you're talking about is, first of all, the power of narrative and the danger of misinformation. And both are at play. So as a culture and as a community, you know, we are naturally giving, we take care of each other. You know, we have the big family meals. Jonathan, you're like one of my cousins now, right? Like everyone is our family. That is who we are naturally as a community. And so this idea that taking care of people or taking care of each other is bad is actually contradictory to who we are as a community and a culture. So there's that piece. But then, you know, what you're talking about related to narrative, and that's so much of the work that we're doing in the Latinx house to combat some of these false narratives that are being generated. You know, we were watching so closely when the 53 migrants uh, died in Texas who came in a semi-trailer. And that was so heartbreaking and so tragic. And now, weeks later, we're seeing how that narrative is being spun in a way to say, well, that's why no one should be allowed to enter the border because we don't want them to die in a semi-trailer. When really it's like, let's talk about fair immigration systems, fair immigration laws. Yes. It's like, why are people having to risk their lives to such extreme? Because there is no way for people to access, like, immigration here. Exactly. So there's all this twisting that happens with the facts. And I think that uh, what you do, what I do, what other people do is like, our job is to make sure that the facts are clear and that the people understand what is the truth. And that to the extent there that there are these false narratives or this demonization of certain people, um, our job is to combat that. And I think all of us who are in the work of trying to create a more just society, we understand that narrative can be a tool for good and narrative unfortunately has been a tool for bad, including in politics. That's 100% true. So what are some of the things that we are launching and we are growing? We're so excited to hear about it. Okay, so this is relevant to our conversation because two and a half years ago during the pandemic, As you know, farm worker community members and so many Latine community members went to work as essential workers and were getting sick and thousands died. I don't think people across our country realize how many thousands of essential workers died during this pandemic. And, you know, the origins of the Latinx House, which is the organization that I co-founded with Olga and Alex, the origin of our organization was really focused on representation and entertainment and making sure that Latin Latinx people had space at places like Sundance. And as we were building our house in 2019, the El Paso massacre happened. 
Mm. And the El Paso massacre happened, as you know, because of the demonization of our community that was happening in politics and other places. And so we organized something that was this called the Querida Familia letter that over 200 leaders across our country, Latinx leaders across our country signed. It was published in the New York Times and five other publications. And in the span of two days, got over a billion media hits. And Jonathan, in one day after that letter was published, we were getting emails from people all around the country. And, you know, I'll never forget the emails because there there was a woman who wrote and she said, you know, I felt like I was in a desert and I found water when that letter was published. Someone said that they felt like they could breathe after they read the letter. So this like outpouring of both pain and also this like togetherness, even though, of course, we didn't know these these folks, but they were responding. And so that's sort of the backdrop of the Latinx house. We officially did launch in January of 2020 at Sundance. And our idea was that we were going to show up in places and spaces of consequence. And then, of course, almost immediately after we launched, we all went into isolation because of COVID. And so we're doing the work and, you know, continuing to build virtually to create space and community for Latinx people and our allies to lift up the many positive contributions of our community. And as we were in conversation, you know, there was so much sorrow because people in our community were dying and getting sick from COVID. And so Mm. I had this light bulb in November of 2020. And I said, we are not going to be able to accelerate change at the pace that is required to save Latine and Latinx lives by just showing up in places of consequence, like the political conventions or at South by, or we're not going to be able to do that at the rate that we're seeing the harm to the community. And if we're actually going to accelerate change to save lives, to close the wealth gap, to close the pay gap, to address some of these other systemic issues, we have to create places of consequence. And we have to create what I like to call a record scratching moment. That moment when we actually have a second to shift things. And that was how Raizado Fest was born, because in my mind, what we are creating for Raizado Fest, which will take place at the end of August in Aspen, Colorado, we are creating what I hope will be a record scratch moment so that people will understand that we as a community, the 62 million of us that are here, that we are not takers. You know, people want to think that our community, that we take jobs, that we take benefits, that we take resources. That's what people say about us. But we are givers. We give jobs. We create opportunities. We create inventions. We create culture. That is who we are. And we give. We give in so many ways. And so this festival is an honoring of the many contributions of our community. And it is in some ways a prayer that we will finally be able to change the narrative about who we are as a community so that we don't have to have the mass suffering that we've experienced for years and years and years. And we're taking over Aspen in a very symbolic way because, as you know, Colorado was Mexico. Spanish is Mm. the dominant language there. Latine and indigenous people have helped to build what is Aspen, a community where, you know, the biggest thought leaders, very wealthy people, very prominent individuals gather throughout the year for different things, for festivals and other things. And we said, 
This is a community and a place and a space that we have built over years and years and years and continue to sustain, but we're not visible there. And so it was with much intentionality that we chose Aspen to be the place where we would launch Rezado Festival. That's so cool. It is. There's so much love and so much heart in this festival and, you know, such big goals for it. And thank you for being excited about it. When is it going to be? It's August 30th to September 1st. What are we doing? Is there like panels? Is there activities? Like what's happening? Is there food? The people want to know if there's food. The food. So so Chef Grace Ramirez, who you might know, she's curating our entire menu for the festival and she's bringing in some other amazing chefs to be part of that experience. The food is going to be so, so yummy and representative of our community. So it won't it won't just be Mexican food. We want to make sure that we're having food that represents other parts of our community as well. So I'm really excited about the food. There will also be music. We're going to be screening some movies and we're going to be having fireside chats and panels and um, you know, these flash talks. Like I can just, I'll give you a little peek. Um, there's this incredible, incredible activist in our community. Her name is Naleli Cabo. She's a 19-year-old activist. She started as an activist when she was nine. Uh. And she um, just won the Goldman Award, which is essentially the equivalent of the Nobel Peace Prize for the environmental movement. Uh, Yeah, because when she was nine years old, she, alongside her mother and her neighbors in L.A., they began to organize because she and other people were getting sick. and And it was because there was oil drilling that was happening in their neighborhood and they were all getting sick. So she and her mother and others created the campaign people over pozos, pozos are holes. So they they created this campaign and they won. And so uh, now she's 19, she's amazing. And she's going to be giving a flash talk about her vision for the future uh, when it comes to the environmental movement and climate change. So that's just one. We obviously need to do like an Aaron Brockovich feature about her. Like right? she needs her own movie that's like- I know. Hello. And her mom, her mom wins and they like found the resources. Come I mean, on, 100%. it's fully Aaron Brockovich, but like mother, daughter, it's, it's so major. I'm like obsessed. What's the story behind the title, like, Reisado Festival? What does Reisado mean? I don't know this word. So Reisado means deeply rooted. And it took us forever to choose the name for this festival. You know, it's like our baby. It's so good. So Reisado for us was like, our community is deeply rooted in this country. And so we wanted to convey that. But the thing about roots, and I know you know about roots because you care about the vegetables and the gardens. Like, I know that about you. I do. And roots, roots grow and they merge. And so we said the, the, the symbolism of a root and us being rooted like that, there's so much meaning because with roots, there's also the opportunity for continued growth. And so that's how we chose Rezado. Ah, so, okay, I love that. How does the festival honor Aspen's Latine and indigenous communities? Is that like by prioritizing like what speakers and like what storytellers, how do you translate that into the festival? Yeah, thank you for asking. So essentially this year's festival is a proof of concept. We needed to be able to prove that we could do this. And so we're only inviting 250 people, Latine community members and our allies for 
the majority of the festival. There will be an afternoon on September 1st. It's open to the public. So we're doing a number of things to make sure that we're honoring the community. First, as a certain number of tickets have been set aside for Latina community members from Colorado. We are creating this really beautiful special video um, including the voices of different Latina community members um, that will show at the beginning of the festival. Uh, we have a local host committee where we've gone to local leaders to help us build this because we didn't want to just fly into a community and do a mm -hmm. thing and then leave. Like we wanted to make sure that the local community was helping us to build it. And so we have this local host committee. The Aspen Mayor is part of it. And we have some other incredible leaders who are part of that committee, making sure that we're acknowledging the land that we're on and acknowledging the leadership of the Ute people from Aspen is really important to us. So we'll have um, some indigenous leaders with us to to ensure that we are properly honoring the land that we are being allowed to use for this festival. We'll have some speakers from Colorado who will be integrated into the program. And then it was really, really important to me to make sure that we were including vendors. So most people might not realize, but the Latina community members who are working in restaurants, they're working in at, at Aspen Meadows Resort, cleaning rooms and doing any other mm. number of jobs. You know, many of them live an hour to two away and they're commuting two to four hours every day to do their jobs because they cannot live in Aspen. It's cost prohibitive. And so we wanted to make sure that we were bringing those community members in as participants in the festival, but also thinking about who are the local vendors, who, who has the food truck two hours away, who are the local mariachi singers in the area? You know, so we've really tried hard to figure out who those folks are to make sure that they can be part of this and that, that we're supporting them and their businesses as well. Um, and the last thing, you know, the Humans Who Feed Us is a campaign that I created through my other organization, Justice for Migrant Women. That's the, the project that we won the James Beard Award for. And that project highlights immigrant food workers along the food supply chain. And so for Raizado, um, our team has identified and interviewed immigrant food workers in and around Aspen. And so there will be a special exhibit of the humans who feed us at the festival that is highlighting the Latina community members who are working in the food supply chain in Aspen and in the nearby cities. So there, we've thought of lots of ways of trying to bring folks in. I love that. I also, the commuting thing, right? So Gas has been so expensive. And I was reading that Shell just reported their profits today. They made $11 billion in the second quarter. $11 billion. And I know that <sighs> Biden like suspended the federal gas tax like a couple months ago. But like, if you look at state taxes on gases, the idea that people who are undocumented don't pay taxes and don't contribute to the economy, like are paying actually like disproportionately more. That's right. Like in so many ways, because of the way that the economy is like made to punch down, like it doesn't punch up on the people with more money, it punches down. And if you're confused about what I'm talking about when I say that, we did a really good episode about that, which we'll link in the episode notes here. But it's like how banks charge overdraft fees and those billions of dollars that get raised off of overdrafts go to then be given to loans to like rich people. It's such an important point. The other thing is that, you know, during the pandemic, people who had wealth and, and were privileged enough to be able to go somewhere other than their home like Aspen, 
they were they were able to relocate during the pandemic. So the like the, the work in those areas is actually greater if you think about it, because there's more people that have been there either temporarily or have decided to relocate. But the benefit to the workers hasn't changed. You know, they're still being paid minimum wage or maybe more. But if you're having to drive four hours a day to go to your minimum wage job, like how do you ever get ahead? Like how do you ever have enough to be able to sustain yourself and your family? And the answer is, is that you really don't. You don't. It reminds me of another episode of Getting Curious that we did where it was about family separation and people were really upset about family separation. And our guest said, you know, Family separation hasn't only been happening at the border. We've been separating family for years in mass incarceration systems. And then when you think about when families come up against incredible financial hardship, a lot of times then you get into like crimes of survival and like like poverty related crimes, which is either like an ability to pay for an old ticket. It can be literally anything from it can be getting involved in sex work. It can be like shoplifting. It can be your kid doesn't go to fucking school. It can be so many things. It can be like you get sick, so you can't take your kid to school. And then like there's just so much stuff that can happen when we run into financial hardship and it's like people don't care and then you think about 11 billion dollars that shell just reported we authorize billions and billions and billions and billions to like foreign wars to all of these things and then that income gap we don't have any affordable housing resources for folks no like guaranteed like access to food shelter we do have power to affect these things, not only at the ballot box, but like right here, right now. And actually speaking of that, how can people get more involved in your organization that are allies to show up and help these like more mutual 80s side of things more immediately? First of all, for folks who won't be attending the festival, there's actually going to be some stuff that we're going to be live streaming. But when you go to the festival website, we set up a giving platform. So I don't know if you know this, but only... About 1% of all philanthropic giving in the entire United States is invested in the Latina community. Mm. So 62 million people in this country, and actually it dipped during COVID, so it went to 0.8% of all philanthropic dollars were invested in the community. That's nothing. How do you even begin to address some of the, the systemic harms that exist? Like, how do you even begin to address some of these big issues that you're talking about, like housing and income inequality, when when the resources don't exist to be able to support the organizations that are doing the work on the ground? We don't want to just get people together to just to celebrate and to talk about problems. We are about action. So we have created a giving platform alongside the festival. And when people go to our website, there will be a donate button. And when they donate, they will be supporting organizations. We've actually chosen a few organizations that re-grant, which that means that when you give money to them, they'll give money to other organizations. And these organizations that they're re-granting to are smaller Latina organizations around the U.S. So we want people to give. That's how people can show up as allies. And that giving will go to organizations that are doing things like mutual aid, that are helping with things like economic injustice. And where's our website? The Latinxhouse.org. They can go there and they'll find the link for Rezado and they'll take them to all the information. And if you're listening to this right now and you're feeling frisky, you can do 5, 10, 15, 20. You don't got to be a coinsy bitch and do a thousand. Like, But if it's not super duper abundant right now and we don't really have like the extra coinsy yeah. to be donating, is there a way that people can volunteer time or like show up in that way to help out in the organization? 
So people can contact us about volunteering, but I think that one of the other ways that it's going to be the most impactful is for every session that we're doing on every, on every issue. So for example, Naleli, who will be talking about climate and environment, every single session that we've created for this festival, there will be four immediate actions that people can take on that issue. Mm. And they'll be on our social media at the Latinx house. That's our social media handle on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. They'll be able to go to our social media and you'll be able to see take four on climate. And we'll tell you exactly like support this organization, sign this petition, tweet this sample post. And so on every issue that we're addressing, because we wanted people to not only know about the problems, we wanted people to have something actionable that they could do to address the problem. So we need to do that because what we need to do is show philanthropy, the government, political leaders, we need to show them that this idea that no one cares about what is happening to our community or the future of our community, that's wrong. We have an activated base of people, Latine community members and our allies who are poised, positioned, and ready to take action. So that is what people should do to really support our effort. And this festival is happening this year for the first time, but our vision for the festival is a minimum of a 10-year run because that's about how long it takes to shift culture. Which is such a good thing to think about because Republicans have actually been really smart about that, understanding that it takes decades to shift. And we've just learned about some of that with sister districts, like you got to think in decades, not in little bits. And so what you were saying is so brilliant because we do need to show leaders that there is like a positive, active, engaged base. And there is, and you can, and we can. And so, yes, there's way more good stuff. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff, but there's good stuff too. There's good stuff too, but we are a C3 organization. So we're not engaged in, in politics or supporting candidates. But our lives are political, right? Like we show up, we're like yeah. in the middle of a political debate. In our work that we've been doing for so many years, we've said, like, there is a, a true information gap that exists in this country. You know, in small towns across this country, newspapers are closing. Yeah. We have a real broadband issue where like in small communities like rural America, people don't have the same access to broadband. So to the extent that people are getting their information from the Internet, they're not getting it. When you look at um, civic engagement and who's like getting the word out to people about voting for one candidate or another, just period, who's getting the information out about voting in poor communities and in rural America, we have civic deserts. So it really is about who has put the dollars, cents and time into educating community members about whatever it is they want to educate them about, including misinformation, Right. So like educating them about the other side or what have you. So that goes back to the importance and the need to ensure that philanthropy is equitably investing in communities, because when communities can't even get basic information, how are we supposed to be best positioned to fight for our lives? I'm going to sprain my neck. I'm nodding so hard. I want people (laughs) to know what you just said strikes home. So personally, my my family owned newspapers for like. I was a sixth generation, like hundreds of years. Like I grew up in a newspaper, like I grew up in newsrooms and like marketing and art departments and ad departments, like before there was computers when you were using like rubber cement and like scalpel, like exacto knives to like lay out papers. Like I was in dark rooms with like our local photographer, like helping her like hang like her work, like her photos. And actually in my hometown of Quincy, which by the way, like has 
a Latina population. There really is a huge information gap and there is also an internet gap. So that really is a huge thing. And thank you for bringing that up. So we were saying earlier how like a huge goal of the Latinx house is representation. And that's kind of where we started. One thing I've thought about a lot is that like as representation for queer people has increased in the media, we have not seen the same correlation in like increasing of rights. In fact, I almost have been, yeah. you know, positing that like, is it almost making it worse in some ways? Cause like we're more visible than ever, but then like we have like more anti-trans bills and more anti-gay bills passed and being debated than ever. How do you see us bridging that gap of like representation and having more human rights? You know, I think that what we're seeing across the country is we're seeing more people who have the lived experience of whatever community, of our community, of the trans community, of women, et cetera, who are running for office. And that matters so much. I mean, there's research that shows that like when women are holding office, there are more bills that are introduced that relate to women and girls. Yeah, we just saw it in Nevada. First legislator in history that had more women, it had a female majority and like so many incredible laws came out of that legislature. That's right. We got to make sure that the people who are representing us understand the lived experience, can firsthand vouch for it, and then are going to fight for it. I spent years and years talking to members of Congress about what farmworker women need or what the farmworker community needs. And there was a point at which I said, no, you know, the answer isn't talking to these members of Congress to try to explain to them what farm workers need. I mean, ultimately, the answer is we need farm worker women to run for office, to be the lawmakers, right? And so that's on the horizon. You know, I'm an attorney, as you said at the beginning. And when I became an attorney, only 1% of all attorneys in the entire United States were Latina. And now we're 2% of all attorneys in the United States. But isn't that a 100% increase <laughs> or a double increase? That's an increase. We need more. We need more. Yeah, more. We need more. Right? Because then lawyers become judges who are making decisions about how the law should be applied. Yes. You know, we need more organizers on the ground who are able to meet face to face with their neighbors to talk about their experiences and what they need. Like, we need more of all of that. And, you know, Jonathan, one of the big underlying goals of our festival, Raizado, is we need more social capital. There's two books. One's called Our Kids and the other book is called Bowling for Columbine. And mm. the, the premise of both books is essentially like what it means to a community or even a family to have social capital. Meaning, you know, the Our, the Our Kids book is about a community here in Ohio. It, it touches on different communities, but the author, who's actually my teacher in grad school, he's from a little town near where I live in Ohio. And, and in the book talks a lot about like, you know, what it means to be in a community where everyone is your kid. They're all our kids, right? The kid riding their bike down the street, that's my kid. I'm looking out for my kid. There was a point in our lives when people looked at you and me and other people that we were their community, even if they didn't know who we were. And now over time, what we've seen is there's less and less social capital. There's less and less of this um, extension of belonging and welcoming and embracing people as community, there's more isolation, there's more exclusion, et cetera. And one of our goals for this festival is we need to build more social capital. We've got to be creating community where we're looking out for each other, where we have each other's backs, where we know that we're going to speak up, stand up when needed, 
if needed for someone. Across the country, we need to do that, but certainly for the Latinx community where we've seen these racial attacks against our community, we definitely need more of that. And it can't be us by ourselves doing it. It needs to be alongside our allies. And so um, we're going to see more of that. And that to me relates to what we're seeing in politics. That to me relates to what we see uh, um, around people building power on the ground. It's all related. So if you're listening to this and you haven't had a chance to listen to our first episode we discussed last year about um, the labor conditions for farm and migrant workers in the United States. Can you remind us of those conditions and what these workers um, face is like a little recap in case people didn't listen to our first episode. Yeah, in case you didn't listen to the first episode. Well, I'm sorry to report that not much has changed. So you're catching mm. up where we left off. Um, there are two to three million farm workers across our nation. About a million of them are women. Farm workers have been excluded from the most basic labor protections for more than 80 years. You know, sexual harassment, uh, pay discrimination, gender steering. Those are all major issues that farm worker women face. Farm workers continue to be sprayed with dangerous pesticides. Women have huge reproductive health issues because of the chemicals they're being exposed to. We see children that are born with birth deformities as a result of being exposed to those chemicals in, while they're in utero. There's so many issues. Um, we see that there's an increasing number of guest workers that are being brought into our country. And in some circumstances, those individuals have been victims of human trafficking. There's just a, a whole range of issues. And the exclusion of rights for farm workers in our country literally dates back to slavery and the mistreatment and harm against our Black siblings whose family members were once slaves. Because once slavery ended and there was an attempt to try to win rights for agricultural workers, domestic workers, and restaurant workers. The groups of workers who were excluded were specifically excluded because the people that held those jobs at that time were Black community members. And so those exclusions and those racist exclusions have carried forward until today. So how the fuck can we fix that? So here's what has to happen. First of all, we have to be conscious consumers. We are buying products from companies, some of whom are involved in exploitative practices. Is there a website? How do we find out? You know, so there's different websites like the United Farm Workers, for example, on their website, they have a um a list of who is approved by them, not yes. who's not approved. Who's approved? Yeah, okay, I love that. Yes, positivity, yes. Yeah, yes. The Coalition of Immokalee Workers for years and years has done work. And if you go to their website, you'll see who are the growers that they're working with, what are the campaigns that they have against other people, the organization FLAC, the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. Well, we're getting all up on there. We're putting all these links on this episode. So as consumers, every single day, we have that opportunity. And we need to support small farmers in and around our communities. So I don't know where you live in the country, but you probably live within an hour of a farm and an hour of rural America, I would guess, right? Even yeah. in New York, on Long Island, there's like one of the oldest farmer organizations in the country. And there are local small farmers, some who, who, who have farm stands, some of whom ship their produce and product. 
Like we need to support those small farmers. And, and to the extent that we have a relationship with them, like because we go and we buy from them, I'm part of a local CSA. I buy from a particular farmer every single week. We create relationships with them. We ask questions. How is it going? How's it going for their workers? So that's important. The other thing is to your point, yes, vote. We need to vote with people whose values are aligned with our values, who believe in treating people with fairness and dignity 100%. But between now and voting, we need to be taking it seriously. You know, I don't know how many times you see on social media when people say, you know, pick up your phone and call this member of Congress or sign this petition or, um, you know, meet with your local political leaders. Do it. Because people like me are putting out those calls to action because we need people to take action. So when you see those calls to action, if it's something that you care about, do it. Because it isn't it isn't just about voting. It's also about holding our political leaders accountable every single day because they yes. work for us. So I, I would say like th- there's always an opportunity to be active. The question is, what do you care about and, and what do you want to be involved in? So one thing we didn't really get a chance to talk about last time very much was climate change. And right now we're in the midst of like just gigantic heat wave that's taken over so much of the country. Yes. How has this extreme weather made workers even more vulnerable? Because in our country, we don't have federal heat laws. So what that means is, you know, in, in places like California, there are um, heat stress laws. So workers are required to um, have shade There are federal laws that provide workers the opportunity to have breaks. They're supposed to have water available to them in the fields when they're working. They don't always. Most times they don't. Um, And so we need to have more laws like this at the federal level to make sure that there's shade protection and that if it's too hot, that people shouldn't have to work for 14 hours, you know, in 100 degree weather. We've seen more heat heat related deaths across the country for workers. And so that, that goes back to legislation. But Legislation is only as good as it can be enforced, and we have to remember that. So we need members of Congress to also appropriate or give the right amount of money to the federal agencies whose job it is like to make sure that there's shade and that there's water and that there are other protections in place. So how has this extreme weather affected like migration, like in terms of migration patterns and in terms of like yeah. conditions? Is It's obviously not made it better or safer. Yeah. So, you know, people don't really like to use this terminology, but there is a group of people that some people coin, quote unquote, climate migrants. And what they mean by that is that there are migrant community members who are being forced to leave their homes because of climate disasters that are happening. So, for example, there was a a mudslide that happened in Guatemala. And so people could no longer live there. They had to move, you know, um, even within the United States, when all those fires were happening, you know, in California and in, in other parts of the country, Oregon, Nevada, when those fires were happening, people had to move. They couldn't stay in their homes. And that included workers who had to move. But in other cases, it's things like, you know, extreme drought where things won't grow anymore and where some of these community members, their families for generations have been farmers, but they can no longer, you know, yield crops where they're living. And, and a lot of them were people who are growing food for their own families. It wasn't even food to sell, but it's no longer viable. And so they have to go to another place in order to find a way to be able to sustain their families. So we're seeing more of that. We'll continue to see more of that as the climate crisis continues. 
in one of our last episodes, uh, we got to talk to Dr. Stephen Thrasher, who is incredible, incredible author. And he was talking a lot with us about boundaries and what the idea of like these artificially drawn boundaries mean and yeah. the fallout from these. So he said that boundaries that, quote, try to say who is safe and who is not end up hurting people on the margins. Does this idea resonate at all with you and your work? It completely resonates with me. And I think that even beyond me, I think the people who it resonates with most in our country is our indigenous siblings. You know, Turtle Island is theirs. Today, our siblings allow us to be on this land, but there has to be a recognition that it's because of violence and loss that we are here, right? And so people made the decision to draw lines around what was the United States, even though it already belonged to other people, right? And so that resonates with me from the perspective that I've had the great honor of spending time with with Indigenous siblings who've taught me a lot about their history and the sorrow, the mourning that they still are suffering from. But for the community that I am from and that I serve, migrant women and in particular farm workers, you know, there's so many artificial lines that have been drawn between countries, between states, and there are all these processes that have been created and they're not fair processes, right? Because why is it that there are thousands and thousands of people from India and from Mexico who are quote unquote waiting in line literally for more than a decade, 10, 13 years to try to bring their family members into the United States with visas. And then there are other countries that have, they have no process at all. They can come and they don't even require the visa. And those countries tend to be um, countries that are uh, white people, right? That's racist, there's racism in our law. And, and I've said this for a long time. Our immigration system is racist. Our immigration system is sexist. And our immigration system was built broken. And so the result of that is that there are people right now living in tents on our southern border trying to get into the United States who have viable asylum claims who cannot get in because of what has happened with our law and the way that our law has been applied. And that harm is, is it, it then results in generational harm. You know, when you think about that episode that you were talking about family separation, when you think about the children that have been separated from the families who've been put into detention, when you think about the fact that now small children are making the decision to migrate as unaccompanied minors because they think it might be safer for them to come than their adult parents, where we sit, we do not know the extent of the harm that has been created, the trauma that has been experienced. We don't know what that is yet. We won't know for years and years, but that is something that our country is going to have to take responsibility for at some point in time. So one thing that I've been so fucking frustrated and pissed off about, um, and I know that you've been very outspoken about SCOTUS and um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But a lot of people say, like, well, it's still legal in 22 states. So if you want to go get a feckin' abortion, you oh can just go to these 22 Because, um, you know, people love to say that. And it's as if everyone has, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of dollars, either get a plane ticket or rent a car and then drive across to another state, especially when gas is 450 and whatever. And if you have other kids and whatever, it's just the whole thing. What even more challenges now do migrants have when they have to? probably access quality health care across state lines. What challenges did these individuals face even before the ruling? So I'm on the National Board of Planned Parenthood, proud 
board member. And one of the reasons I made the decision to join the board was because for migrant women, um, Planned Parenthood and clinics like Planned Parenthood, they're the only place that they could get care, right? And it in the whole range of care. For many migrant community members, you know, they don't have health insurance. Care is cost prohibitive. Many times they don't go to the doctor until it is an acute situation, right? They're not getting preventative care. They didn't have providers that spoke their language or all sorts of barriers. Thankfully, some of these clinics have outreach workers. They have bilingual um, promotoras. They have people who are going into communities to get people care. They have mobile health clinics in some cases um, to find the community members where they are, especially because in like the colonias in Texas and South Texas, or in like some of the farm worker camps where we work, people don't have cars to be getting to the clinics. Because now if you're in South Texas, you're like, that's like five, six hours of a drive to get to New Mexico or... But Jonathan, the one thing you didn't mention that's so important to name for migrant women, especially undocumented people or people who come from mixed status families, there are checkpoints all along the way. There are immigration checkpoints. So you're literally risking ever being able to see your family again if you get caught. If you did get caught, wouldn't you have to go to like an ICE place and then you would definitely have to have that baby? Actually, the Biden administration last week came out with a statement about migrant girls um, because, you know, sometimes when um, migrant children are apprehended or or even when women are apprehended, they do a, a physical exam and sometimes they determine that they're pregnant because, as you know, sexual violence and migration is a, a major problem. Um, some people are fleeing domestic and sexual violence when they come here. And so some people, when they get put into detention, they are pregnant, right? And so this the administration last week um, said that if individuals are apprehended, that, that they have to be put in a detention center um, in a state that uh, allows, still allows for abortion. But isn't Abbott going to like probably sue them over that? Like, well... Like, because like, won't Abbott want to keep anyone who he catches like in Texas? Well, I'm sure that that will be the case. But as of now, this is what the administration has said. That's so chilling when you think about how many more border patrol people were hired, like under Trump, and how many of them are like policemen who got fired, ex-military people, like hardcore PTSD. And if you catch someone alone in the middle of the night, like a young girl or a young person, I don't even care what their gender is because like all sorts of shit can happen. That's right. That's right. You know, and actually this is something I've really been upset about and cared about for a long time because there is sexual violence that is happening um, against migrant community members by uh, Border Patrol. by other people and right by other people in detention and etc and and i recall speaking to somebody years ago about this because i really feel like there needs to be more work done on this issue and um the individual who i was speaking to was a border patrol agent and he told me that there was a policy that was created that requires that from the time an agent apprehends a person they're supposed to call it in and there's a certain period of time from which they're supposed to take the person to the the border holding center. There's actually a policy on that. Because so much shit went down that they had to make a policy because it was such a widespread problem. I'm sure. I'm sure. Right. I mean, that's not what the person told me, but I'm sure that's the case. But that's a faulty process also, because like 
who's to say they're going to call it in as soon as they find the person, right? Like who's to say they're not going to delay. And even body cam isn't even like a safe thing. So this is just like rife with abuse, like just border patrol, ice, like all of it. It's just like rife with human rights, full on abuse. Yeah. And and back to where we started talking about the Dobbs uh, ruling, you know, I think people don't consider, first of all, that not everyone has a vehicle to be able to go to a different state. Not everyone has gas or money to be able to do that. Not everyone can take time off of work to go someplace else. Like all of those things, right? But if you're a micro community member who is undocumented wherever you are in the country, and in particular in Texas, you have border checkpoints along the way. And now like even in Ohio where I live, there are border patrol cars that, that are just like police cars that are, you kind of roaming around. So if that is the climate that you're in, like what is the possibility that you're going to go for care? Because you can't even get beyond the checkpoint and whether the care is for yourself or for someone else in your family. I've heard people talking about, you know, the fact that in Mexico, uh, abortion is legal and so people could go to Mexico. And I'm like, how do you get back to the border? So then just to like double down on this idea too, um, especially with border patrol, it's like, Immigration laws are racist. Remember like in the 80s and 90s, that policy that they used to talk about that was like the this type of foot versus that type of foot policy, you know? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it, isn't that, doesn't that still exist? It does still exist. And I mean, and I think we should be clear because you and I are both people who love deeply and who feel deeply. I think we should be clear that There are many allies. There are many people who agree with what we're saying about the humanity and dignity of migrant people and of other people across our country. And we understand that we, like we as a community are gonna make things better. We are making things better. But the hard work that we have is to change the hearts and minds of the people who are vilifying people that they actually know nothing about and who they've completely stereotyped and who have the best intentions and the biggest dreams. And they want to do the hardest work to make things better for themselves and for our entire country. Like that's the work that we have is to figure out how we can break through to change the hearts and minds. And that's the work that we're committed to doing. So I don't want to give the impression that it's like that we believe that that no one is on our side because I do believe that many people, many people are on our side. For sure. Yes, 100%. Allies need to do better about understanding what the systems are so that we can have these conversations with people because I think most people are good. Even people who are on the other side and like who don't seemingly share my same values on like loving deeply and like wanting to, you know, honor the humanity in people. So I want to say something to this point because I think it's really important. And here's a learning opportunity. I think most people in our country don't realize that in our immigration system and our immigration laws, there's something called visa caps. There's there's caps, country caps that our government has said, like, okay, if you're from this country, you can have you can have this many visas. If you're from this country, it's this many. And there's literally oh if People who do immigration law regularly and they represent clients, they'll go and they'll look and they'll say like, okay, what year are they up to? What year um, applications are they up to? And it's like 10, 13 years later, right? Like They're like super behind um, for certain countries. And I think people kind of have this false impression that everyone files the paperwork and then after they file the paperwork, then they just quote unquote, wait in line. And then when it's their turn, they get the the application, but what's what's inequitable is that the lines are different, and the and the costs are different, and 
um, you know, the standards are different. Some people get temporary protective status. Some countries don't, right? Some people um, are able to get a certain kind of special visa depending on their status. Like if they're special skilled immigrant individual applying, there's a special visa. And I just think there's like a lot of misinformation and lack of education around what that quote unquote line is that everyone's talking about. But how can we support you and your work and how can people get involved? For me, some of the things that really stuck out from this um, is that less than 1% of all philanthropic money goes into Latine and Latinx organizations. We got to get it together with that. So that's one thing. Also, like lack of transparency and awareness around like speaking to the systems of immigration and like what this so-called line that we talk about is. And then the other thing is, is, how can I be more involved in getting more support to the Latina community? Those are kind of my biggest takeaways, but how can we specifically support the Latinx house and uh, you and your work and stay up to date with you? Well, first, please follow the Latinx house on all of our social platforms. Doing at, it literally as we speak, you guys. Okay. At the Latinx house on, on Twitter, Instagram, on Facebook. You can find us there. We also have a YouTube channel. Follow us. Celebrate this festival, August 30th to September 1st. We'll be releasing content coming from the festival, and we'll be telling people what to take action on. So all of those things are things you can do to support the work that we are doing and to support the organizations that we are in community with and walking alongside in, in this journey. And the other thing I would say is talk to your friends and your neighbors and your family about our community and the positive contributions that we're making and the local organizations that you can support. We are going to change the narrative about the 62 million people in our country who, who identify as Latine, story by story, person by person, and we need you to join us in that effort. Ah. Monica Ramirez, we love you so much. I'm getting curious. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your time with us. Thank you for everything. No, thank you for everything. You're just the best of all time and we love you so much. And thanks for coming on Getting Curious. Love you so much. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Monica Ramirez. You'll find links to her work and our first episode together in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please, honey, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe because that's how we keep the lights on in this operation. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJBN. Our socials are run and curated by Team Getting Curious. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 